Hey everyone, this is Flippin' Finance. I'm Sam Ismore and I'm joined by my co-host Fabian. Hello again. This week we're covering the big macro reports that came out last week. And for clarification, Fabian only has one name. Goes by Fabian. That's true. Just like Prince. That's so true. So kick the disclosure music real quick. As always, none of this is investment advice and does not constitute an offer to buy or sell securities, nor do any of my opinions reflect those of my employer, Vallejo Financial Advisors, or any of its affiliates. This is for educational purposes only, and we are lazy, so we have no duty to revise any of this information. With that, let's get to it. Let's go. So, I'm sure, Fabian, you were up Tuesday morning at 8.30 waiting for the CPI report, like I was. I, I was awake. <laughs> I was awake. It it may or may not be on my calendar, and you can actually do this if you go to the uh, government websites. They'll, they'll give you a, a calendar link for all their economic reports when they come out. But CPI, aka inflation, came out on Tuesday, and then the Fed had its monthly meeting called FOMC meeting on Wednesday, right after that. So those are two real big reports that are driving the market right now, and you we'll talk about how the market moved a, a little bit. Uh, during those. So with that, let's kick it off. Do you know what the CPI report came in at? Lower than expected. There we go. It is. It, is, it did come in lower than expected. So it came in at 7.1% and expectations were 7.3. So you consider that lower than expectations given everything going on. That's a really good thing. And just to keep everything like the market is totally relative because in December, inflation came in at 7.1% and the market hated it. So inflation came in on Tuesday at 71 and the market really liked it. So I, to me, it's kind of like everything's relative, context matters. It's, it's very important. So the market rallied on, on that news. And that's mainly because the trajectory of inflation, and that's headline inflation. So that includes food, energy, shelter, everything is starting to actually come down at a good clip. So it kind of peaked out right at 9% roughly four months ago. And now it's come down to, to 7.1. 9%, man. What were we doing when things were at 9% that like nobody was spending any money? Uh, well, I think, a, so we have this in the show notes. It kind of shows the composition of, of inflation. A good majority of that was really energy costs. So if you can remember back in the summer, Gasoline prices were really high, and that has come down a lot. So that's been a, a big mover in in the line item there. Also, the core goods, so things that were really expensive over 2021, those have basically have stopped going up completely at all. So those two big things right there are the biggest uh, contributors to 7.1% in inflation, those numbers being smaller. Got it. Got it. And there's another thing called core inflation. So that actually backs out energy and food costs because when you when you go into the show notes and look at the, the components of CPI, you'll see that energy and food move around a lot. So when you look at core, it too came under expectations as well. So it was like a really good report 
uh, last Tuesday. Despite the headline number coming in lower than expectations, there's still one issue with underlying this report, and that's something called sticky inflation. And that has to do with housing and wages. So when the, the Federal Reserve comes out and talks on Wednesday, they specifically highlight things that they consider sticky. So in their mind, they want to get inflation back to 2%. And sticky inflation, like wages and housing, th- those don't really change too much quickly over time. Their fear is that like, that will become embedded in inflation and keep us above the 2% target. So that's kind of their big concern. So the good thing is headline inflation is coming down. Bad thing is uh, a component that doesn't change too much is continuing to stay a little bit higher, and it's, and it's a large weighting in CPI. And and so when I was looking at this this chart here for the U.S. inflation, the year-over-year percentage versus inflation weights, what what does that mean? What is like weighted inflation or inflation weights? What does that like refer to? That's just the the weight in the the calculation. So, for example, you most consumers spend more on housing than they do on education costs and on on clothing and, and transportation. So. Uh, there's like conspiracy theories out there that they they change the weightings to try and get the number that they want. But really, they, they're, and when I say they, it's like the economists working at, and the government that come up with these these measures. They change the weighting based on what they think the average consumer is. The average consumer on a monthly basis is spending on housing. So right now, housing is roughly forty percent of the CPI. Whereas education is only like five percent, and transportation is like twenty percent. So, like the good news is like the smaller components of CPI are, are coming in lower, but the bigger one at housing is still continuing to grind higher. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and then also in here you can play an economist and project where inflation is. So we have this in the show notes. If you have like 0.2% monthly inflation or 0.1% monthly inflation, you can kind of see where that ends up uh, in a year from now. So you can create a range of like 4% or 3%. So if you want, we're wanting to be uh, like a really smart, you're like, well, if monthly inflation continues to increase at 0.2%, by June of 23, inflation will be down to 2%. That would be nice. So, yeah, it I would be. If only, if only that was reality, right? Yeah, but if it's at 0.4%, then we end up at roughly 3.8% inflation rate. A little different, almost two times higher. All still sounds good comparatively. Exactly, exactly. And and that kind of brings us to the FOMC or the Fed. So that's what the Fed's hoping to do. So they're, they're hoping to create a soft landing, meaning no economic recession, but also getting inflation back to their 2% target. That's totally made up, by the way. But they're sticking with it, the 2% target. And they had what's called the FOMC meetings. That's where they come out and give their their press conference that we've talked about in in the past, and the market moves around in it. And it's actually an interesting one to kind of listen to and or read, because they they have uh, the speech minutes out there. And their position is that they believe inflation is still too high, it's still trending in like the wrong direction in a way because of the stickiness that we were talking about earlier. And their plan is to continue to raise rates going forward. So they still have two more rate hikes kind of priced into the market. And what they keep reasserting is that they're going to keep rates higher for longer just to keep things restrictive. They don't want inflation to come back at all. And that's because most of them, if you work in the Fed, you're, you're 
typically older. I mean, Jay Powell's in his his 60s, I believe, and he's the guy who runs the Fed. They all remember the, the 1970s. So that if you go ask your parents what were the 1970s like, they will talk to you about stagflation, so that's really high inflation and low growth. You don't want that. They'll talk about mortgages being at roughly 19% and all that. And if you look at, if you overlay where inflation is today versus the 1970s, the 70s has a little double uh, Campbell humpback. So you got two humps. So you have like this big spike, it comes back down, and then a couple years later, it spikes back up over 10%. So if you look at our current inflation, we're having a similar first hump. And the Fed keeps iterating that we want to keep rates higher. We don't want inflation to come back like it did in the 1970s. And that is why they keep jawboning and saying, you know, we're going to keep things restrictive. Really believe us, we're not going to lower rates. We don't want inflation to come back because uh, back in the 1980s, the beginning of the 1980s, Paul Volcker had to raise rates to 19% to eventually stop inflation. So they all remember this. They don't want this to happen again. That's kind of like the big driver behind what they're talking about. You know what's crazy? Looking at some of these charts, is just it, it just looks like they're... Not that you can time things out, but they're so closely related when you look at like the, like the current day and what has happened in the past that it, it, it kind of seems like it can be somewhat predictable. Does that make like, does that make sense? Yeah. 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 It's, it seems like, oh, well, it's going to just come back down and then it's going to go back up. And there, I think, I think history, there's a great quote that history rhymes, but it doesn't really repeat itself. So I think like we're in a somewhat similar situation, even though I think it's slightly different. And you can go read some of that in my little catalog of why I think the seventies is different than, than now, but that's what they're worried about. They don't want a repeat of that. And why hasn't anybody figured out something new to do other than raising interest rates to combat inflation? Like, why is that the default thing to do? Yeah, that, that's a great question. There, There's some other theories that you could raise taxes. So that's modern modern monetary theory is that you could raise taxes to help combat inflation. But really, it's it's one of the few tools that we have and the way it is, is inflation is too much money chasing too few goods in a way. So if you raise rates, the cost of money goes up. So hopefully there's less money chasing those goods. Uh, that's a, And also the, the other things that have, they've tried, like the Nixon price controls, they don't work. So it's not like they haven't tried other things. It's just this is the only thing like politically I think can work well because price controls don't work. Um Raising taxes doesn't work, right? Uh, but raising rates is is more, it's easier. I feel like it's the lesser evil, so to speak. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a great question. Also, love that you call this guy Jay Powell. Like you guys are friends. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we DM a little bit. He tells me what's going to happen beforehand all the time. So, all right. <laughs> and then, so. If you've been following the podcast and, and reading the newsletter, you know that the market is is constantly moving based on the future of, of inflation and what the Fed's going to do when they're going to stop aggressively raising rates. So what was interesting to, to me is that's why we had so much market gyrations last week. And this is in the show notes as well. So we had CPI come out Tuesday morning, market jumps, goes up 4%, kind of settles back down, ends up roughly about 1% on the day, but kind of a big move for, for the market because it sees 
well, inflation's coming down. That means the Fed might stop raising rates as as soon as they've uh, sooner than, than they've said in their in their speeches. But then we had Wednesday, so we actually had the Fem- the Fed's comments during this. And the fascinating thing to me is you can see the market kind of digest and move uh, around what what the Fed's going to do. So they they reached they released the minutes of their meeting at at two p.m. and you can see the market just go straight down. Mm-hmm. So it goes down from about it's almost up one percent for the day, and then it just drops two percent in a matter of like two minutes. So that's a really big move that doesn't really normally happen. And then Jay Powell comes out, you know, my boy. He comes out at two thirty and he starts talking. So he has a prepared speech, and then he starts taking comments from uh, questions from journalists, and the market starts moving from that. So you get this big drop, and then you have this 05 percent drop again in the market, and then slowly it starts eking its way back up to to almost even while he's talking. So it's this interesting thing where you can see the market just recalibrating around. When will the Fed stop aggressive rate hikes? And they're trying to just guess at what he's saying. And even though he keeps, because he doesn't come out and say like, if we see inflation at 2%, I'm going to lower rates to 4%. It's kind of just like, we're just going to keep things restrictive and stay data dependent. And it's like, okay, well, exactly what are you going to do when this? So that's the market just guessing up and down. So you had mentioned in a previous newsletter this uh, like new way of trading where they were trading like when the market closes and opens kind of thing, right? Like overnight trading or something like that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Am I being crazy? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. You want me to expand on that or what's your question? Well, no. So the, the question has to do with something similar to that. So are there people who trade based on these talks? Like when the Fed talks, you know, like based on how this is moving, I'm, I'm assuming that this is kind of typical of like anything that they say, it, like sure. the market will have movements like that. Like, are there people out there that are crazy enough to like trade around those talks? There, are, there are people that that are crazy enough, but a lot of the movement you see intraday like this is actually computer programs. So they people have have uh, written huge crazy trading algorithms, and there's a, there's a ton of companies that go out and they'll scan the minutes and they'll they'll trade based on that. So that's what you'll see. In the short run, and like five minutes after something's released, is people guessing and computers trading and things like that. So it's a lot more algorithm, algorithmic, computer driven than it is people driven. Got it. And then that kind of brings us into something you'll probably be hearing a lot in in, in headlines, and that's the inverted yield curve. So a yield curve is on your your y axis going up. You've got just the percentage of, of the yield. So the U.S. Treasury yield curve. And right now you can get uh, a one-year U.S. Treasury for roughly about 5%, but a 30-year U.S. Treasury is is roughly about 3.5% or something like that. I, I didn't check it before, but it's lower than 5%. So you've got your yield on the Y, you've got your maturity on the X going over to the right. Connecting those dots gives you a yield curve. So normally it goes and starts left to right and kind of goes up and slopes up. And that, that creates the yield curve. So the, you can see a little uh, picture of it in, in the show notes because I'm probably butchering describing it. <laughs> but the, yeah, but right now it's inverted. So you have the short end of the curve. So the three-month uh, T-bill, the U.S. T-bill is roughly about 4.8. And then it kind of slopes down 
and kind of goes out. So instead of going up on that traditional left to right on a smooth increase, it's kind of like a big hump at the beginning and then kind of goes down like a water slide in a way. So that is what an inverted yield curve looks like. And you can see it in the show notes, but that's not typical. And if, if your parent or anyone else is, is freaking out talking about the inverted yield curve, that's because whenever that happens, almost always a rece- recession follows. There's been a couple false signals uh, on there, but almost always when it inverts, you get a recession. So that's why everyone's saying 2023, we're going to get a recession. Could be a mild one. It's not the end of the world, but it's also what has people freaked out. And so the the yield curve is currently inverted. Yes. Oh man. And that's a economic recession predictor. That's why people are freaked out. So then it kind of goes into, well, if the yield curve's inverted, how long until a recession actually occurs? So you can go in and see that. I think of the inverted yield curve as almost like a shot clock. It's like the economy signaling that something's not quite right. Because like if you think about it, you should be compensated for a higher rate if you're if you're buying a further out asset than a shorter asset in there. And when you go back, the the average is roughly around 18 months. So it's kind of like a shot clock uh, average in that in that way. So it can stay inverted for some time, but historically a recession happens in 18 months. And I have no idea if one will happen next next year. I kind of think we'll be okay because so many people are freaking out about a recession. Usually the market makes the most amount of people look stupid. So I would just take the opposite of what everyone else is saying and usually it'd be pretty good. I lived that motto with a lot of things in my life. Yeah. It depends on the context uh, of that, you know, Blank, but blanket uh, term, baby. <laughs> I'm just Yolo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I've got one more question. Sure. And this is like big, big stuff here. This is a very important question, Sam. Sure. sure. Um, so be prepared. What do I buy with my 401k <laughs> when the no. recession hits? Well, it, it does have to do the, with the recession and it does have to do with money. So it's just like the money that we have invested and, and we, this is anybody, right? So the money that you have invested, what happens to that money that is invested during a recession? So normally stocks, a, a traditional recession uh, earnings drop by 20%. And then, so that's earnings. And then the multiple compresses, we talked about the PE multiple, the multiple of the earnings drops. So a typical drop in stocks is like around 20, 25% from current levels. And this is just, this is me off the top of my head, off memory. And then there's another component to, to most portfolios and that's bonds that we talked about. Uh, that, that's what the U.S. uh yield curve is, is made up of. It's made up of bonds. And those tend to do very well. So you've got stocks that kind of get hit a little bit. And most people, they're closer to retirement and or they don't have the risk tolerance for a 100% stock portfolio. They'll have some bonds. We actually tend to do really well. Because if we get a recession, the Fed will most likely uh, cut rates. And when rates go down, bond values go up. It's kind of inverse relationship there, teeter-totter, if you will. And that'll give you some balance. So then you go and sell some of your bonds, buy some of the stocks at the at the bottom. Well, not really at the bottom, but like just a, a rebalancing mm-hmm. your portfolio. So that's typically what you see in a recession, which is why everyone's kind of concerned in a way because nobody wants their stocks to go down. Gotcha. And so like using an example of like, let's call it $100,000. Let's say you have $100,000. These stocks drop by 
we'll call it 20%, then you only have $80,000, right? Mm -hmm. And then when it bounces back, you'll just kind of make all that back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, if you do nothing. The the, the the issue is that most people people will open their, their online access or statement or whatever, and they'll go, oh my God, I lost $20,000. And you're like, okay, like, yes, that's not good. But the way you really lose out in a stock portfolio is when you sell, when you're down. Right. You know, like you should think of these as long-term assets. It's And the, the price you pay for the growth of a stock portfolio is the short-term kind of volatility of opening your statement and going, oh crap, we're down like 20%. Like what happened? Have it quick. Yeah. And so the the only way you would lose money is if in during a recession the company just kind of goes out of business and that stock becomes worthless. Mm-hmm. Typically, yep, mm-hmm. and that's why I usually advocate for being a uh, typical uh, financial advisor. You advocate for diversification, so you're not taking on uh, what they would call idiosyncratic risk, meaning single company risk. So if you're just owning the full market, that will tend to come back over time. Whereas like just one company could could go to zero like if you look at like carvana right now it's going to zero for the most part i mean that was a stupid idea anyway (laughs) people do it like there's like if you go on to tesla twitter right now there are people that own millions of dollars of just tesla and it's down 65 percent year to date right now but it, it made them a lot of money in 2020 and 2021 and people are just like doubling down on it and You'll see people talking about like I own five million in Tesla, not me personally, but the people on Twitter. I own a lot more. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> but it's just like, oh my gosh, like just owning one stock worth of millions when you don't have direct control of the company and it's down sixty five percent. You're like, to me, that's just that's not. You're setting yourself up for failure in a way. Right. So, moral so. of the story: don't retire during a recession. Well, you could be fine. It depends on you. So if you're if you're in those bonds, if you're in a bond portfolio and a recession hits, you should do well. So that's why it's like the the art and science of like financial advisory is like combining uh, stocks with the bonds, with the person's risk tolerance, also with their risk capacity, their ability to take risk, modeling out and getting to not, I don't know many retirees that have 100% stock portfolio. Right. You know, wouldn't advocate for that. You could, you could retire going into recession and be fine based on uh, a good plan well that's comforting and and with that that's that's my prepared comments on on today digesting last week's macro movements if you got questions where we did a question uh, a listener question last week so we're happy to to do that but also uh, comments and feedback are are welcome and if you could go in and rate Rate the podcast and subscribe to the newsletter. We'd greatly appreciate it.